for me, editing is almost a kind of auditory uh, capacity. It's like I can hear the book on the page. I can hear the voice, and I hear when the voice slips. I can hear if it's a natural voice. For example, when writers talk, there's an image they use, or there's a perception that is a writer's perception, a writer's image. That was the first thing I noticed about Tom Brokaw. He used an image when he was talking about a novel at a party, and I thought, holy cow, that's a writer's image. Is he a writer? Tom Brokaw's reading fiction? That's Kate Medina, executive vice president, associate publisher, and executive editorial director at Random House. Here Kate describes how she spotted the talent in one of her many writers, this one, Tom Brokaw. Their relationship led to Brokaw's very popular and, indeed, generation-defining book, The Greatest Generation. I like this anecdote because it indicates something a bit surprising about what Kate does as an editor. She doesn't just edit, she spots talent. She encourages it, she helps cultivate it in her writers. In this interview, we hear from Kate about her career at Random House, where she's worked with such writers as E.L. Doctorow, John Irving, Anna Quinlan, John Meacham, Nancy Reagan, and many others. Kate Medina and I talk early on in this episode about James Joyce's Ulysses. At one point, Kate calls it the urtext of our conversation. Kate and I met in a graduate seminar on Ulysses at NYU, led by Professor John Waters, a previous guest on the podcast. Kate first read the book as an undergraduate at Smith College, and that experience put her on a path to becoming an editor. We talk about that text and how it has changed for Kate over the years. We also talk about how it helped to make her an excellent close reader. Of course, you have to be a lot more than a good close reader to be an editor. Kate Medina tells us what it takes, really, to work in publishing. She talks about entrepreneurialism and a commitment to creative intimate relationships, even friendships between writers and editors. Kate talks about some of the relationships that have been most important in her career. This episode starts with Kate Medina describing her first encounter with Joyce's Ulysses while she was a student at Smith and how it inspired her ultimately to become an editor. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. When I read it as an undergraduate, it was in a uh, seminar, which is really the only way to do it. It's not a kind of lecture book, I think. And we followed different threads through Ulysses. And mine was color symbolism. And what, what we discovered was that every thread anybody followed created the same meaning as every other thread, so that the book was actually completely integrated in a vision. And so that's what I remembered most. And the important thing in terms of, of my becoming an editor was that I loved doing that seminar as an undergraduate. I found I kind of neglected the other courses because it was so much fun to trace this theme through Ulysses, and it was so much fun to talk about it in a small group. Um, and at the end of the seminar, the professor was a very senior professor who spoke, who taught uh, Shakespeare and Joyce. 
uh, said to me, you know, Miss Bach, you're really quite good at this. And I kind of leaned on that f when I became an editor or when I was trying to become an editor, that somehow or other Fisher thought I knew what I was doing with a text. It meant a lot to me because I think one of the things a young editor has to acquire is some kind of confidence that what you're seeing in a book is there and useful and what might be a little better might have credibility. Then it's up to the author whether they want to address it or not. But so Joyce was always in my heart, but I also knew that whatever I read at 19 wouldn't be seen the same way as I might see it when a lot of my life has been lived. Especially Ulysses, yes. though, right? Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about this when we were talking, and I um, I came across an article published in the Times in like 1986, which w was an interview with you, in which you say, I, I've got the quotation right here, um, the author writes, it was during her junior year at Smith, she said as an English major specializing in modern fiction that a seminar on James Joyce's Ulysses shaped her future. Uh, and then your quotation is, I realized I had learned how to read and it was fun to really focus hard on a book and figure out why it worked. I, it's, it struck me when I read that and, and strikes me now that I, I, I think e as an undergrad, I had similar relationships with some texts, but I don't know if it could have been with Ulysses in large part because it deals with um, it, it deals with like the the sort of deep humanness of people yes, in does. ways that I in ways that I just couldn't as a 19 year old I couldn't have do you feel like you you got Ulysses um, I I fell in love with it I don't think um, it's anything like reading it when you're older um, you asked me how I felt about Leopold Bloom so I kind of liked a quote from the Sybil in the Nighttown chapter where she says he's the funniest man in the world. I mean, I liked him from the beginning. For me, the book picked up on chapter four yeah. when all of a sudden you're in bloom and he's, he's dodging thinking about mm -hmm. everything he is actually thinking about. I think a lot of people do that particularly if they're walking around trauma, the death of a son. They're walking around things that they don't know how to address that are wrong in their lives. And his talking to the cat and all this stuff that he does that is shows a very interactive, generous kind of man, despite the, you know, things he's not coping with. I just understood that as an older person in a way I never did mm. as a young person when I might have been more idealistic and I, I don't remember thinking this, but I might have thought, why doesn't he just get on with it? Why doesn't he say something to her? Well, now I understand, you know, he actually loves her mm. and this is a long-term marriage with a lot of things that have gone wrong. So. To me, when our colleague, who was particularly interested in Dante, was saying that she, or, or one of the other students mm. said they liked the dignity of Leopold Bloom, I thought that was a wonderful point. And one of the things I loved about doing it in the seminar was that 
I had my things that I thought were interesting or that I noticed, but everybody had something different as their uh, thread, Lacan, for example. All, all the different ways of appreciating what Joyce was doing expanded my understanding of what was going on there. So as the commercial publisher in the group, I think I was the only one who really liked the Nausicaa chapter with the writing, Joyce's amazing writing about like in a romance because yep. I've read one million uh, romances not as maybe as beautifully done as that but I saw exactly what he was doing and to me it was absolutely hilarious um, I remember John saying you know he didn't really go for that or, or somebody said he didn't go for that and I and I said you know I just think it's hilarious. <laughs> well, that's that's interesting. I mean, it, because you and your analyses of the text often brought um, to bear on your reading uh, the book you cited, Ugly Feelings. Yes. Right. Um, and just talking about uh, exactly as you say uh, the ways in which Bloom dodged trauma, yes. or the ways in which he repressed his feelings about right. it, but it would allow it, uh, it couldn't help but allow it occasionally to sort of resurge during his day as he was thinking right. about his wife. Um, when you were when you were an undergrad, your professor still said um, um, that you were a very good reader of the text yes. and of text generally. Do you think that what initially... Uh, um, brought you to Ulysses or made you very interested in it was simply its stylistic innovation, innovation and do you think that, that that is what really propelled you as a reader and then perhaps later as an editor? I think that I had read The Dead mm. uh, and that I thought the even as a, uh, as a young person uh, that that was an extraordinary story even though I didn't exactly understand what he was doing and I didn't know why it sort of made my hair stand on end. Um, and so, uh, and I also was always a very booky kid. It's like, well, that's what I did was to read. So by the time I got to college, um, I, I just was amazingly keen. And so I would... Like, I could have told you everything that was on Achilles' shield when we read the Odyssey. Like, I was, like, and the Iliad. I was, like, on it. So to to tackle a book, I think that's why Fisher let me in the seminar, that I was always so um, diligent and uh, passionate about the reading. And... I had been in his general lit course, and we were seated alphabetically, so Bach, I was right in front of him. So he would always call on me, so I was really then prepared. So that's how I came to Joyce. I think that, um, in a way, it came at a good time, too, because I think once you get almost ready to graduate from college, you're ready to take on more in the way of challenging mm -hmm. things. The difference to read Joyce now in this seminar with John and the rest of the group there was that unlike being a book editor, the real, real emphasis for me was on language. And so language and voice are 
why we acquire a writer, why we want to publish a writer. It's also story, characters, what the premise of the book is, the terrain of it, whereas in Joyce, those things are not as important as the language. So for me, it was a completely different way to read. It was just this language. And, uh, you know, I listened to tapes by a guy named Arnold Weinstein, mm. Brown professor, uh, on Joyce's Ulysses. And he stressed the, f the humor of it, how funny it was. So I kind of remembered that from Weinstein. Um, so for me, it was, a, it was a real turning point in my life, actually, to read in that seminar. So that's, I remember asking you this after a class, but I, I'll put it to you again. Um, you, you say that your, your focus um, on language uh, was refreshing because that's not always the, like the first question you ask about a text when you come it to is, it. It's one of the first questions, but it's not the be-all and end-all. Okay, okay. A story is more important for most um, things that we would be publishing in a commercial house. But the story of Joyce's Ulysses is not really what you're reading it for. So what yes. I found, my mistakes in the beginning chapters and questions that I had were to think it was going in the direction <laughs> yeah. that most of the stuff I read would be going in and it wasn't not at all I was well, wrong yeah exactly well and that's <laughs> that's that's funny I um so I guess I'm wondering and this is obviously purely a thought experiment but let's say now as an editor Joyce just wrote Ulysses and perhaps was even a um uh, an unknown author and that book came across your desk how would you how would you approach it as an editor, I, it's it's so unwieldy, and it's just doing things that so few other texts do, or maybe it just does them much more intensely. Um, what would your instincts be? Like, how would you want to respond to it as an editor? Well, you know, I mean, Random House did publish it in the United States um, and smuggled it in so that it would be put on trial so that it would become part of the modern library. It was almost the beginning of the modern library. And uh, what a lot of people don't know is that Bennett Cerf bought the modern library from a man named Horace Liverite, and that was going to be what he was publishing. So then he started to publish a few other books at random, and so that became Random House. But the heart of it, the original impulse, was to publish in the modern library. So to put James Joyce on sale in the United States in the modern library was a big coup for this nascent uh, publishing house. Mm. I would like to think that I or some of the young editors here, if we were had this book submitted, would have known enough to buy it. And in fact, Random House imprint would be a great place for a book like this. It also was true that it, it wouldn't necessarily have landed on one of our desks here out of the blue. Pieces had appeared in prestigious literary journals. So we read those literary journals. We would have heard the chat. We would have heard something. One of us would have said, oh, somebody get after that, right? Let's see it. And then I hope we would have known to just leave it alone. I think he's basically would have been editor-proof. He wouldn't have stood for it, and 
look what happened. It wouldn't have mattered. What would your responses be? I just, I'm, I'm reminded of um, Anna, Anna Quinlan wrote um, and delivered a great tribute to you. And one of the things she referenced, I think she began her talk with this, was um, she referenced your enormous envelopes, those things that she ta- referred to jokingly but very fondly as the things that you send authors after you read a draft. Right. What would, you, what would have been in Joyce's enormous envelope? Well, I just can't imagine that it would have been necessary to to do hmm. what what mostly happens uh now and and i don't know uh, the history of ulysses well enough to know if you know he worked on it on and uh, yep. for forever yep. right so so you know it almost would be like and the additions, uh, the additions are still contested. Yeah. yeah. So I don't, I don't think that okay. we could even begin to imagine that being part of a process like what we would do now. I think it's, it's different. I think it's now different. But what is in the enormous envelope is a kind of training I had from the first. Uh, editor I worked for was a legendary man named Sam Vaughn. And what you do is you read the manuscript and you make notes. And then you read it again to see, because you don't know at the beginning where it's going to wind up. And most books, uh, or a lot of books, the writer starts without knowing exactly where he or she is going to wind up. So often the beginning has to be rewritten to match up with where it came out. So so you read the book very carefully, the manuscript very carefully. You make notes in the margin that add up to some kind of impression of where you think the book needs to be improved or what about the book is kind of hiding in plain sight inside it. So y- you do have to try to understand I think, as an editor, what the writer is trying to do and say. And then you do a memo that summarizes the marginal notes and that gives the big picture. So there are two memos. One is the general points and one is the page two, page eight, page seven. And the edited manuscript. And that's what goes into the enormous envelope. Who, who have been some of the writers that have received this enormous envelope from you? There's E.L. Doctorow, there's Anna Quinlan. Well, almost everybody that I work with gets some version of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, not Doctorow. Doctorow was almost beyond that. I mean, the the main book that I worked with on, uh, of Edgar's was The March, and there wasn't very much to do mm-hmm. about the march and in a way it, it it's it's a kind of masterpiece i think in that if you're paying attention and and edgar was very mischievous as well as always you know an old lefty always pushing uh something about society and about people it's an anti-war novel is really what the march is so it's sherman's march but the writing in the first pages is like a march. 
It's like I think there's almost one, only one sentence on the first page or so. So, so you you catch on to things like that, and then I think at a certain point you leave it alone. Mm-hmm. Um, but nonfiction and fiction both is all about a story, and so a lot of what an editor tries to do is to see where the story slips or where the voice, which has to be the natural voice of the writer, the voice slips when it was really time for the writer to get lunch or something, you know, where, where people get tired. And, and so you try to uh, hear it. For me, editing is almost a kind of auditory hmm. uh, capacity. It's like I can hear the book on the page. I can hear the voice Do you on read the page. out loud? No, I can just hear it, mm. and I hear when the voice slips. I can hear if it's a natural voice. For example, I can hear it when writers talk. There's an image they use, or there's a perception that is a writer's perception, a writer's image. That was the first thing I noticed about Tom Brokaw. He used an image when he was talking about a novel at a party, and I thought, holy cow, that's a writer's image. Is he a why is mm. Tom Brokaw's reading fiction? I mean, I didn't, it didn't, I, but I trusted that. I heard it. So I that heard in, it. That indicated to you a certain writerly capacity in yes. him. Okay. A, a lyricism. Oh, well, that's so interesting because I actually, I was, I was planning on asking this later, but I'll just move it up. Um, especially with, with Brokaw, I, I remember reading um, that you, uh, that this party that you're talking about took place in 1988. 88 or 89, 88 yeah. or 89. What's, I mean, what's striking about that is I know that the book you worked with him on is, or was The Greatest Generation. That's right. That didn't come out until like 98, right? right. Okay, so you, so you heard this, you identified this writerly capacity in Brokaw 10 years before you actually published a book by him. So this relationship that you developed with him as an editor uh, spanned 10 years before it produced a book. Right. So uh, that's that's really interesting to me because I, I just I have to imagine that one thing that that people have in their heads when they think of the work of an editor is just sitting down with a book that's given to you. But in fact, much of your work consists in identifying talent and cultivating it over time. Right. It's an entrepreneurial position. And that's the way I was trained by Vaughn. You don't just sit there and hope that somebody's going to send you something good, although you do. And you talk to agents and you, you, so on and so forth. But basically, um, it's it's a, an agency endeavor. You're supposed to find them, get closer to something that may be nascent that somebody's going to write. So in the jo- Joyce seminar, our erd text here, uh, when I was talking about uh, Nye's ugly feelings mm-hmm. and suspended agency. Uh, it was because I was very interested in agency versus suspended agency. And her position, I think, was that repression of ugly feelings or dodging u- ugly feelings leads to suspended agency and a narrative of non-progressing, what she called a narrative of non-progressing. So in my training with Vaughn uh, was basically get out there and find people who ought to be writing a book who aren't yet. So um, when I heard Brokaw use this literary image 
I did say to him at that party, have you ever thought of writing a book? And he said, sometimes. So that's really sort of all I needed. And so um, I said, I, I'd like to invite you to lunch. He said, sure. So we had lunch once a year for however many years that was, and he never canceled. <laughs> so it was always so, in his head. You knew. So it was I thought, head. well, you know, how I suffer for Random House, I have to have lunch with Tom Brokaw. <laughs> this is really so hard. Because it was always fun. He was always interested in books, and he was always uh, d just like somebody you could really know. He's a Main Street guy. He's Yankton, South Dakota High School. He married the smart girl in his class in Yankton High School. Uh, one wife, one publisher, one NBC News. Hmm. It, it was like a, a kind of America I understood. Sure. And, it's and a, a kind of person I understood. Well, that's right. And it's, it's the exact kind of person who would be able to come up with the coin, the phrase, the greatest generation, which, of course, is the sort of a governing metaphor. And well, and it, was, it took a lot of guts to say that. Right. But also, you know, he was starting on another book, and then he, he called and said, I want to I set this book aside, and I want to write a book I call The Greatest Generation. And it's about the people who came through the Depression and fought in World War II. The average American person is the kind of untold story about the Second World War. And I want to preserve those stories before they all disappear. And I started to cry when he was describing this. I knew it was partly a tribute to his parents, his parents' generation. But he had heard the stories at the 40th anniversary of D-Day and the 50th anniversary of D-Day. So he knew that those stories were amazing. And he wanted to say this is a part of our history that hasn't been documented and let's get these stories before they all are no longer with us. The outcome of that book, which was so like a wildfire, um, at one point a person in the plants of Random House said, we're selling 19 copies a minute of The Greatest Generation. It was because it came after 1998's Monica Lewinsky, right. when we didn't feel so proud of ourselves. It wasn't a maybe such a big deal, yeah, but it was certainly embarrassing. Context, exactly. Yeah. And for the era, it wasn't didn't make us feel real proud of. Then come along comes this anchor man who says, you know, this is the greatest generation in the history of the world. And was willing to back it up with what he said. So then the other thing that was uh, inspiring about that was it, it made kids talk to their parents because the greatest generation never talked about themselves. Right. It First of all, the war was so horrible they just shut the door on it. And well, ugly also, feelings, exactly. Yeah, yeah they just didn't want to go there. And also, that generation was like my parents' generation. They didn't talk about themselves. They just, talking about yourself was gross. You know, it was just not done. So kids would say, you know, I never really understood why my father got so ballistic when somebody was burning the flag. Well, once you read The Greatest Generation, you understand 
your parents in a way maybe you didn't before, or your grandfather. So, th- so then Tom, of course, went on to write a lot of other books, and he writes in a natural voice. He, he, it's like having him talk on the page. That's the key to a lot of the people we publish hmm. in fiction or nonfiction. Get, get they write, write the way they talk. Okay. And and it's a natural voice that if you put your hand, and somebody did a book about this, where writers were invited to write a book, uh, write a story, unlike anything they are normally uh, attributed to them, to, to take a flyer on something. And it would be published not under their name. And somebody gave me this book and said, one of your authors is in this. Can you figure out who and which story? And I got it in one. I got it in the title of the story. Because you can't mistake a writer's voice. It was a, it was a story by Quinlan. And I could see it instantly. I could tell you, even though he throws his voice and does different things, which was a Dr. O. Hmm. Because it's always Dr. Rowe, somewhere or other. So this is a lot of fun, right? Well, that's so, I mean, that's so interesting. Uh, that you can identify a voice, I mean, indicates, and this is no big um, revelation, but indicates that you're a very good close reader and that you can follow and feel someone's voice. But it also indicates the fact that you have developed these relationships right. um, with writers. It's uh, the cadence also. The cadence. The phraseology. The kinds of images. The subjects would be... Also, even though they said they were picking a different kind of subject, can, it wasn't so different. Well, and I, you, you brought up Dr. O's leftism and his writing about um, history. I mean, it's interesting. The Sherman, the, the, the topic of, of taking up Sherman's march is interesting because Dr. O so often writes about New York City. Yes. Um, I'm actually, I, I do, I, I came across this quotation um, just from Bruce Weber's um, piece on Dr. O in the Times yeah, um, in 20, was a wonderful piece. 2015. It really was. And I actually, um, I love this this paragraph, if you'll permit me just to read it at you. Um, right. Uh, su- subtly subversive in his fiction, less yes. so in his left-wing political writing, Dr. O consistently upended expectations with a cocktail of fiction. In fact, remixed in book after book with clever and substantive manipulations of popular genres right. like the Western and the detective story and with his myriad storytelling strategies, deploring in different books, or excuse me, deploying in different books, the unreliable narrator, the stream of consciousness narrator, the omniscient narrator, and multiple narrators. All that. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Dr. O um, was one of contemporary fiction's most restless experimenters. Now, so if Dr. O was one of fiction's most restless experimenters, that really has to mean that you have been one of fiction's most nimble editors. Uh, I have to imagine that working with Dr. O must have meant all the time that you as an editor couldn't um, get too comfortable, could never allow your suggestions, um, your critiques, uh, fall along the lines of received wisdom or cliche. Right. You had to be as nimble as he was. Yes. How... uh, that, That, I think, necessitates a kind of intellectual and creative intimacy. Yes. Could you talk about that with uh, with Dr. O in particular? Sure. I mean, your editor is someone, you know, it's a relationship of trust, like any, many other kinds of, like friendship or things where you can make your mistakes 
and you can say things that the next day you say, you know, when I said that, I don't believe that anymore. And the, and the person says, fine, it's written on the wind. I have a friend like that, Sally, who was an editor with me at Doubleday, uh, Sally Arvisiris. So when you are in an intimate relationship with a writer and you're the editor, first of all, it's their book. It's not your book. Their name is on it. It's their story. It's their creativity and their way of unfolding what it is they want to do. So my job is to really pay attention and to listen to what it is they're unfolding. And if we're talking, as opposed to if I'm reading it, to accept the vulnerabilities and the insecurities that uh, creative people or maybe all people have and to be reassuring just let me read it you know just give me something to read uh in the case of dr o one of the things i loved about it i did trust him i think he trusted me or it never would have worked and he always surprised me so for example, we published a collection of short stories in which he had a story called All the Time in the World. It was an amazingly experimental story that turned on its head reality. So reality became something unreal. I just, it took my breath away that a, a man as senior as Edgar was at that point would be pushing himself and pushing the envelope that far to write this amazing story. So that's exhilarating to actually be present at the creation. I didn't do much to edit Edgar Doctorow. It wasn't necessary. What I had to do was to pay attention to him and to treat everything he did very, very seriously. And that was easy. And Random has published Dr. O for years. So everybody else supported the project as well. So so that was that was very meaningful for me. Then contrasted to that is a book we did last year, The Girls by Emma Klein, who's in her twenties, and in two two pages, I could tell this was a fabulous writer, mm. and I shut the door and read the whole thing. That's a different kind of intimacy because I understood what she was saying about girls. And when she came in here to meet me, she s I said, how do you know so much about girls? And she said, I got five sisters. <laughs> <laughs> so, so people have different ways of relating to one another, but the heart of the editor author relationship is it's their book their name is on it and ultimately it's up to them but we have to trust one another that everything I'm saying is coming from what I feel is important about the book to get said it doesn't have to do with me do you feel like um I have a few questions about that I, one especially with respect to Dr. O um do you feel comfortable with speechlessness like in the face of, because you uh, do, do you feel like it's incumbent upon you to always be able to respond to a piece constructively? And if you come across no. something that you don't. If it's, if it's fine as is, it's fine as mm -hmm. is. And a lot of books are 
or fine as is, or there's one or two story points that are sort of soggy where somebody should, like, move to the next scene. That's pretty common, and particularly in the first 50 pages and the last 50 pages. So when did, well, actually, um, um, the Klein book, when did that come out? It came, it was published uh, last year, 216. Was that was that relationship the result of you identifying talents, or how did that come about? That this thing? the the manuscript was submitted, and uh, I flipped. I just thought it was wonderful, and other people here did too. So that was e- that was pretty easy. So how 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 often do you find that actually it is a book that sort of comes across your desk versus something that you've been cultivating? Would you say it's a relationship you've been cultivating? Would you say it's fifty? It's like it's split down the middle. Or, and I guess how much, how much time do you spend just reading a text and you don't know if it's going to be good or not? You're just sort of taking a risk on it. Yeah, we, re- we read uh, to, to far enough to see if, if we'd like it. Uh, it's a hard question to say how much is a submission, how much is something you went after. For example, on Anna Quinlan, I loved her columns. This goes back a long time, her columns I- in the New York Times. So when the first... 50 pages of a novel and a collection of her pieces were submitted we had to make another offer if we were going to get the book and what we realized was that I and the wife of a man who was 25 years older than I both had her columns on the refrigerator and we figured if somebody you know in their 50s and somebody in their 20s have this woman's pieces on the refrigerator with all we have to read it was worth another $25,000 or some move we made and and then we have a a long-term relationship so my my training always was the grass isn't greener you have to be greener you have to get out there and see if you don't like what's what's on your list you have to do something about that Mm. you have to say to yourself okay, so what do I want that I don't have here on this list? And in my training, coming along when when women were becoming important in the business, um, there were a lot of people who would encourage, we would encourage each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sally Artiseros, Lisa Drew at Doubleday would always say, okay, you know, do it, do it. So um, the atmosphere of the publishing groups editorial ecosystem is very important because we have to support one another and random is very good at that too well so that's uh, did you say that you were in your 20s at this time with the mm-hmm. with the that's that's so fascinating to me because as as you say that there's a great deal of entrepreneurialism in what you have to do and so i think so yeah i think so i think it's one thing people don't know about an editor a book editor it's certainly true of magazine editors that go out and find people mm-hmm. who can who can write exciting things. We like to find people that amuse us. So that's, uh, as you say, there's entrepreneurialism in that there's also a great, uh, there's a great deal of savvy and um, confidence. Yes. Um, and that you had this set of other editors, many female coming up in the right. business in the industry. I mean... Uh, I th- when people use the term entrepreneurialism, they often talk about business um, and just bi- just business that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with um, 
with literary culture. But right. of course, literary culture has a canon, and it mm-hmm. has a sta- yes. it has established faces and voices. Um, at at the time, still today, many male, mostly male. Um, but could you just talk a bit more about the experience of coming up as a as a twenty year old as an editor as a female editor working with all these other editors? Um, um, did you uh, did you feel like you were contributing to the literary canon, the American literary canon, or trying to change it up, trying to b- bring um, more energy, vitality to it? I don't think I don't think I thought in that kind of grandiose term. Mm-hmm. I was trying to uh, help the editors and learn how to really do it myself. So my big break was Jaws. So I was the kid who wrote a memo on Jaws. And then when the editor, because the book was so successful, left the company because he got a better job and eventually was assigned to a senior editor, he said, I want to work with the kid who wrote the memo. So that was my kind of first break. And also Tennessee Williams' memoir. So the door was always open and the 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 strength was the kind of commitment of a young editor to the book it wasn't it wasn't grandiose i was trying to help the senior editor who was kind of out of gas on reading this again um reading the second or third draft of this book but it always had the fish I always had the fish. reading Jaws. That's just so fascinating to me because, in fact, I've actually n- I haven't read the book, but of course I've so seen the film. Novel. That's well, and just it's it's the concept is so simple and compelling. Right. <laughs> so okay, so you weren't thinking in grandiose terms Not about your all. contribution I was to trying American to help literature. Yeah. Okay, but nevertheless, you did as a as a young editor. Um, write a memo on a book that would become huge and then a f- and then that would produce a film that would become in terms of American cinema and world cinema wildly right. famous. So now sort of looking back on that and and obviously having a position in which you can very much set the vision for a lot of what um a lot of what this this company will will produce and will publish. Do you think now about in terms of y- your contribution as an editor to the American literary tradition? I, I can't say, Joseph, that I uh, think that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's a... I, I'm sorry, but I don't think it's about me. I think it's a, that I am a conduit that I can pick with confidence. Writers, I think, are marvelous. And help them get out there. But I don't know that I'm thinking as a kind of culture shaper. Mm -hmm. However, uh, I am a a book shaper. So it's up to the writer to really be the culture shaper. So somebody like Isabel Wilkerson, The Warmth of Other Suns, it's a magnificent book. It's a symphonic book. So so really what I did was, and she said this, help her get the structure right so that it would start in a way that make people actually read this. It's a braid of different threads that come together. It is a symphonic book. It's fantastic. But she did it. I didn't do it. But I could hear it. Mm. And same for uh, um, Behind the Beautiful Forever's Catherine Boo about life in a Mumbai slum. Sounds like the worst idea, maybe, commercially. But it was 
a big bestseller for us because of how she wrote it. She wrote it like, like a work of art. You say you're, you say, and you said this uh, uh, on a few occasions, drawn to voice that you can identify yes. a, someone who yes, is absolutely. a writer, even yes. if she've, she's never written. Yes. Um, would you say that that's that because you 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 work with fiction writers, nonfiction writers? Yes. The thread that links them is a kind of, as you say, writerly voice. Yes. Um, are you, looking back on the writers you've worked with and the books you've helped put out? Have you found any particular themes that you're also just naturally drawn to? It's always about family. That's almost always about family and a and a kind of desire to belong, and some kind of human qualities th that are uh, that are part of it. One of the things I'm interested in, and and maybe in your lifetime we'll figure out is the neuroscience of storytelling. So where in the brain is the storytelling ability? Where is it? And I've asked various people in neuroscience about this, but at this point, to my knowledge anyway, that's not a priority. The priority in people in neuroscience is more about emotion and about how do you cope with Alzheimer's, bigger store, bigger problems than how, where does the storytelling part of the brain, because that's the one thing we can't teach a writer. If you can't tell a story, it gets very hard to publish a really good book. It's the one, we can fix anything else, too long, too short, what, it doesn't matter. If you have a voice, it's wonderful, but you have to be able to tell a story. So it's a kind of sequencing ability that some people have and some people don't. I don't know how it relates, for example, to music in the brain, because music is a kind of sequencing also. But I've asked different neuroscience people about this, and nobody is so fascinating, or was whenever I asked, uh, Except I think a woman named Rebecca Sachs said it's, maybe it has something, it's close to the autobiographical part of the brain. It's like... The story we uh, tell about ourselves? That it's, there's parts of the brain that in the default state of consciousness, you revert to yourself. It's like Molly Bloom. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. one reason Molly Bloom was so interesting. The inner speech that... Um, Gibbs writes about in Joyce's Ghost. So he's moving into that area of, of the neuroscience of, of Luke speech. Gibbons? Yeah, yeah. That's an incredible book, mm -hmm. which John urged me to read because I said what I was interested in was consciousness. So, but to go back to what I do all day, uh, the storytelling ability is something that is very important in terms of writing. It's the one thing I can't do for you. Um, I can fix it if you have a story and it's bloated or it's too short or whatever. But I can't give you that ability if you don't have it. And it is something in the mind that I hope that in your lifetime somebody's going to figure it out. But it's not a high priority. You see what I'm saying? It's People would more be more interested in curing the diseases of the brain 
autism and so on than, than this thing, which is a literary question on my part. Well, it, it does seem as well like you, you made the analogy to music and the ability to produce yes. music. And you say in storytelling there's something about sequencing. sequencing. It's a sequencing. But you say it can't be taught. So you could even... I don't know if it can be taught. I, I know if, 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 if I receive a manuscript and it has not got a story rudder that is discernible... It's a red flag. If it has bad images, not for Random House. So there's certain things that are tips that it isn't going to go here. That doesn't mean it won't go someplace else. Or if the writer works on it more, it won't be. But if you, but the storytelling and sequencing capacity is really important in fiction or nonfiction. It's, it's a story. It's all a story. That was Kate Medina, Executive Vice President, Associate Publisher, and Executive Editorial Director at Random House. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Lise Whitney. Kadaj Bar edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies and it's been quite a few months, quite a year for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit HowenstainCenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan. This has been Common Ground. <laughs>